Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 3. Let's uh, read along. Follow me, will you? Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. The birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth for, uh, of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to what you want us to hear by your Spirit today as we seek to be rooted, to grow up in you and to become all that you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know that one of the interesting things about uh, this passage and others that are like it that we'll touch on in a moment the same gospel, the same gospel seed, different results. Same gospel seed planted, different results. The parable of the sower, uh, before we really dig deep into its meaning, it's important that we understand that this is uh, a, a synoptic parable, which means that it's uh, a parable that Jesus recounted by all three of, of the gospel authors. There, all three of them tell it. Uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and uh, they likely used a similar source, uh, eyewitness, uh, uh, a, a writing about this story that, that existed, was passed down. They likely used uh, similarly uh, the same source as they told this story in their Gospels. Mark, uh, reading quickly through, through his version, what he says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it, and other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since it had no depth of soil when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell on thorny, and thorns grew up uh, and uh, choked it, and, and it yielded no, gra no grain. And as uh, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, and he said, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. That's out of Mark chapter 4. Out of Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 5 through 8, a little shorter version, he says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds uh, of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and it grew up and it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell on thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell on good ground and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And, said, uh, and he said these things, he called out, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I thought it was interesting to, as I was looking through this parable, to examine what the early Christian fathers uh, had to say about this particular parable and how they viewed it and we're looking at it. Augustine, uh, for him, the issue was clarifying who were true converts. When he looked at this passage, he saw it as a way of clarifying who were the true converts and who were uh, not true converts to Christianity. Now, he lived in a time of, of uh, doctrinal orthodoxy and, 
and it was a, a, just starting to cool from the forge of the persecutions of Nicaea. And so there was a lot going on. And so his view, looking at this passage, was a way to see true converts. Are they yielding fruit? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. For John Wesley, it was a, an issue of conversion for him, but conversion based on conviction about personal responsibility. Personally responsible for what happens with the seed that falls into the ground, into the ground of my life. And the capacity for each person to choose for himself or for herself the good and the repentance uh, they're involved about the evil uh, that is in our own hearts or the, the desire to be self-reliant and find ourselves uh, not a nourishing ground for the growth of things that God wants to bring into our lives. John Calvin had an interesting take on it. The parable communicated for him the raw theological value of the gospel and its urgent spiritual implications uh, for believers in his time, and, and the parable brought uh, all of human life under this razor-thin uh, field. It highlighted the stark contrast in which the gospel light places all human choices. So for John Calvin, he was saying, this is a picture of what happens with every single choice of humanity. Choices uh, about the gospel that we would make that less, make us less susceptible to obedience and those and, and the growth doesn't take place. We grow up, the sun scorches, it withers and dies, and so on and so forth. For Charles Spurgeon, the parable was, for him, instructive for his methodology as preaching. He was known as the preacher's preacher. He taught uh, preachers to preach. And so he saw a unique task of preaching the gospel as, uh, in, in, in this parable as a, as a task of sub-sowing. So sowing at the behest of the great sower, who supplies all gospel seed, and we as ministers and preachers of the gospel, and all of us are called to that, whether you stand up here or not, to be those who share the good news and to seed the ground, we are sowing at the behest of the great sower. Now all of these implications are true about this text. True converts produce good fruit. We are all personally responsible for how we respond to the gospel message. In the light of the gospel, our act will and our choices will be magnified and others will see. As Christians, are, um, we are all ministers of the gospel, Spurgeon thought. And those who have not heard are looking to us to share the good news. And there's so much more that is involved in this it's important for us to break it down. So let's take a moment to get into it and talk about the implications uh, further on this. And the first thing I want to point out to you is that discipleship is the work of the church of Jesus Christ. It is the very core of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, churches have gotten engaged in a lot of missions. A lot of things that would seem benevolent and good. They've got involved in feeding the hungry and clothing those who are naked. They've got involved, uh, for good or bad, in, in, in political issues that arise. They become community organizers and brought people together for various causes and reasons. But I would say to you, from a biblical perspective, 
that we do not have the right to be called the body of Christ if the core and central issue of what we are doing is not about discipleship. Discipleship is the work of the church of Jesus Christ. It's so important because storms uh, rage and they break up everything that's not deeply rooted. And we are going through a cultural revolution that's been going on for some time. It's sweeping. It's a deconstructionist movement. I would say it leans back at least two, three decades. And this deconstructionist movement, everything that we have thought we believed or thought we held true is being challenged and, and deconstructed and torn down to its very basic entity. And yet the gospel stands strong. The word of God stands firm. The counsel of God stands true. But there are heated trials that uh, bring pain and suffering for all of those who are not deeply rooted. It is the great wind of our era that is blowing against their tree. And if they're not deeply rooted, they can be unrooted and tipped over. The seed of the gospel, this is another interesting thing about these passages out of the synoptic gospels about this parable. The seed of the gospel springs up wherever it's planted. It springs up wherever it's planted. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed. It fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them, and some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately sprang up because of, it had no depth, and some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang, uh, sprang up and choked them. It's interesting, isn't it, that the seed of the gospel germinates and springs wherever it's planted. doesn't matter where it's planted, it, it springs up. Now you might be challenging me right now and saying, well, what about that seed that it says fell by the wayside and the birds ate it? Did you get that part of it? The birds came and ate the seed. How many of you have gone into your backyard in spring and you've found it full of weeds? <clears throat> and you said to yourself, I don't ever remember planting weeds. I planted grass, I planted flowers, I planted trees. I do not remember planting weeds, wildflowers, all kinds of things like this. Uh, occasionally, you might even get uh, a seed of, of, of fruit-bearing kind of a plant, a tomato plant, or whatever else might be popping up in your yard. And you're just amazed at how did this happen and where did it come from? And while you're standing out there, all of a sudden you hear the birds in the trees singing, right? You notice a little bird poop on the trees and around in some areas there. And uh, you, you, you realize that there's seed in bird poop, right? And uh, it begins to spring up. And life comes out of that. Seed thrown by the wayside is not wasted. Gospel seed that's been thrown to the wayside is never wasted. Sometimes it's carried by the winds, by the birds. You can kill the bird, but you can't kill the seed. Right? It is full of life. And you might not realize this, but a real prestigious university did a study on this particular issue and determine, and they got your tax money to do it, okay? A real prestigious university studied bird poop, and they got your tax money to do it, and they discovered that seed grows better when birds poop it. 
it actually has a better chance at life, uh, has more opportunity to grow. Stony places. The Bible talks about it falling on stony places. There are, there's growth in stony places. Now, I grew up in the mountains of Arizona and deserts, and, and uh, there's a lot of, of, of uh, when I read this, it makes perfect sense. I have gone uh, across you know, rocky terrain and stuff and just been amazed in the middle of all this rocky terrain. There's a, there's a section over there by where my brother's church is, and it's, uh, there's even a museum. Uh, this is on the outskirts of Phoenix, kind of starting to go up uh, 17 towards Flagstaff, but at the, still in the desert, right? And uh, there's this, the story behind this is that there was a volcano that exploded in Flagstaff, and the lava rock and stuff fell all the way down here. It's, it created little mountains, and it's, it's mountains of lava rock, black lava rock that, you know, with the little pot poles in it, and you've seen it, and it's very hard to walk across. Would you believe there are things growing all over that? Mountain just popping up, you know? Uh, and uh, they, they, uh, they're, they're growing there in the midst of stony places. There's a growth even in stony places, uh, but since there's no support, that growth is always at risk. It's always at risk. There's no way to put down deep roots, and so winds blow, and it, it is gone. Uh, rains come, it germinates and grows by the little bit of soil it has. Sun scorches, and it dies. And, and so it's always at risk, but it can grow. And then there's the thorny places. It talks about plants grow in thorny places. Uh, even even uh, they put down deeper roots there, but the problem is, that the thorny uh, bushes around them choke life out of them, eventually keeping them from seeing the sun, preventing them from being able to, to get the nutrients that are necessary out of the soil in order to thrive and to become all that God's called them to be. The seed of the gospel springs up wherever it's planted. And that's an interesting point about this particular parable. It grows, though, effectively where it is rooted for life, called the good ground. It grows where it is rooted for life. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop some hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Same gospel, different results. Same gospel seed, different results. So what is good ground? What does good ground look like? What are the elements for having good ground? Well, I believe there are three things that produce good ground in your life, and you're responsible for all three of these. There are three things that make ground good for growth of the gospel, for your personal growth and development spiritually, for your spiritual formation. And here they are. You see them up on the, on the overhead as learn, feed, and worship. The first one, teachable posture to learn. Teachable posture to learn. We're going to talk about that in two facets, all right? So there is the ability to learn, which we'll talk about. And then there is the willingness. And those are two very important things. Ability and willingness. Say that with me. Ability. Say it together. Ability willingness. 
Second, committed student of the word. Feed, feed. Committed student that takes in and eats. Jesus said to his disciples on one occasion when they were arguing about food, he said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And he's talking about spiritual food. And then the third one is worship. And the declaration in Scripture is that we are to worship God the way He wants to be worshipped, in spirit and in truth. So let's begin with the first one here. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? Are you teachable? So the first one is the ability. Do I have the ability to grow and to learn? There are occasions in scriptures we read through them where people were challenged in their ability to be able to learn. They were challenged sometimes, um, you know, intellectually to learn. And so it was necessary to teach them at a level that they could understand. We do that here, don't we? We have children's classes and we have, uh, you know, various kinds of ways that people can learn. So they're challenged Sometimes uh, just intellectual levels that you can learn and, and drink it in. But one of the bigger ones that we see throughout Scripture was they were challenged by oppressive spirits and bondage. There was bondage in people's lives that needed to be obliterated. It's interesting that as we watch the ministry of Jesus, there's a big part of the ministry of Jesus that is dealing with people's ability to open to the gospel truth. Their ability to be free, he casts out demons. He deals with, with false teachings. And throughout Scripture in the New Testament, the, the apostles find themselves over and over again dealing with these. There were deconstruction movements before this deconstruction movement 2,000 years ago. Everybody thinks what they're doing is new. They've just renamed it. It's been going on for centuries. They've been trying to tear at the fabric of God because they want to be their own God. And so the apostles were often dealing with this and correcting the church and bringing them back. It had to do with their ability to be able to listen, learn, receive. There were addiction issues that were going on. That, there were healing issues where people were, uh, you know, they, it's, uh, I don't know if you, like me, when I was in school and I started out with, uh, as an education major. Anybody else start out as an education major? One of the first things you see, nobody in this room, maybe on on. <laughs> Uh, maybe, you know, one of the first things they show you is Maslow's hierarchy of learning. Do you guys remember seeing that, the, the pyramid? And they talked about the basic needs need to be met before someone can learn. So you got somebody that's hungry. If you have someone that's insecure, they're fearful. If you have, if you have someone that, that, that uh, is, is bound in some way in their minds, they're unable to learn. They can sit in the same room by someone who is learning and not learn because of ability. Ability. It is our challenge to, to, to open to God to do a healing work in our hearts and our minds that we might have the ability to learn and to grow and to be all that God's called us to be. It's a part of our surrender to the Lord. The healing work of Jesus Christ is not just the physical healing of our bodies, but emotionally, mentally. Some of you have been scarred and been damaged from young ages, from things that have happened in your life. They have bent us. Paul talks about we're all read these reeds that are bent in the wind. And we get, we're not really going to get straight here on earth. So don't have unrealistic expectations. <laughs> we might get a little straighter, right? The finished work is going to happen when we meet him. 
He's going to perfect it. And we're going to realize, wow, I never knew what normal was. <laughs> Amen. We always talk about, why aren't they normal? You know, they're looking at us going, why aren't they normal? <laughs> we're all not normal. <laughs> we are not. We don't know what normal is. When we get in his presence, we're going to know what normal is, right? Ability. So the second side of it is, are you willing? Are you willing? How many times did Jesus challenge, are you willing that you might be healed? That sounds, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like if you're wounded and sick, you know, are, aren't you willing to be healed? Well, sometimes not. Sometimes we like the attention. Sometimes we, we're in a world right now that likes to be identified as a victim. We like that. And until we get to a place where we don't like that, we're not in a position where we're willing to learn and to grow. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God, right? The word of truth. And God spoke through Hosea, and he said these words, and they tied to both the ability and to the willingness my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. Hosea chapter 4, 6. My people are being destroyed for the lack of knowledge because of ability in some instances, because of willingness, sometimes both. Ability and willingness to allow me to do what's necessary in their life. You and I have a personal responsibility to learn, to seek wisdom, to get a biblical education. Look at what God has provided for us to do that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave, uh, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. I think the scripture's up here. I want you to read the last line with me. For equipping the saints for the work of ministry, here it is, for edifying the body of Christ. So let's read that last one together. For equipping for the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. We have a, a rich, rich heritage of God providing for us disciples, teachers, trainers, educators. It's on our end to say, I need the ability, Lord, and I want to be willing to grow and to learn and to develop. We have tools and resources today for learning like never before in the history of mankind. But the question always comes back to our doorstep, are you teachable? Are you teachable? The second part of this is feed, feed. John chapter 4, verse 32, I quoted the scripture a minute. I have food, Jesus said, to eat that you, that you do not know. We have some neighbors, actually they're, they're, they've moved now, but we had neighbors that uh, were next to us that had a green thumb, and, and they grew some of the best tomatoes. Just awesome tomatoes. And every year, Michelle and I would go out and buy tomato plants, and we had these, these great aspirations for how these were going to grow. And, and often we just wound up with uh, you know one or two or just a green vine, just this beautiful green vine that would put out flowers occasionally. 
and never do what it was supposed to do. And, you know, they would come over from sometimes and bring us some of these, these grape tomatoes and, and the tomatoes that they were growing. We're like, how? What is going on? Is it our soil poisoned? What is happening, you know, to us? Why can't we do this? And finally, I left my pride behind and I went over to ask my neighbor the secret of growing tomatoes. And the first thing he did was he asked me, what are you feeding them? What are you feeding them? I didn't want to say it out loud, but I was feeding them dirt and water. <laughs> and uh, so in order to save face and not answer, you know, I said, well, what do you feed them? <laughs> and he began to tell me uh, about the product that he was using to feed these tomatoes. And I went right out and bought some food. And wouldn't you know, the miracle of miracles, my tomatoes began to grow on the tomato plant. What are you feeding your spirit? What are you feeding your spirit? Empty and dryness, uh, the inability to, to weather storms, fearfulness, all those things that are coming on us on a regular basis uh, often are indicating that we are not really feeding our spirit man. What are you feeding your spirit man? What are you putting in? Because that's going to give you the results, the product, right? And third is worship. And I said it earlier, you can't worship God the way you want to worship him. The Bible tells us that over and over again. We can't worship God the way we want to worship him. Part-time, uh, when we feel emotionally led to, uh, when the right song comes on, K-Love, uh, whatever it might be that we have a line, we can't worship God the way we want to worship Him, right? God has demanded that we worship Him the way He wants to be worshipped. That's always been a challenge for uh, people coming to Christ. Is God an egomaniac? He just demands worship and wants us to worship Him the way He wants to be worshipped? You know, where do we see pictures of this? But our whole world is made up of worship. We're blinded to it. In every way, we are seeking worship. In relationships that we are cultivating and trying to get in our lives, it is often about us getting noticed and getting attention. Social media is rampant with our uh, attempts to try to grab uh, in idolatry some kind of attention and worship. It's, we were born into that because we were born into sin. It is the nature of the enemy who stood up in the presence of the very God of heaven and said, I will be worshipped. I. Me. I saw an interesting meme this week uh, just with the word entitlement. Entitlement. But the two letters in the middle highlighted me. Me. Entitled me. Entitlement. Me. It's about me. I deserve. I need. I want. Worship is, is, is rampant in our world, but God's saying it should be focused on me. God is the one being of the universe from whom self-exaltation is the highest of virtue. For there is only one supremely beautiful being in the universe. There is only one all-satisfying person in the universe. And because of his supreme beauty, 
and his greatness. Psalmist said in 16, Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there is pleasure evermore. Now listen to me closely. If God hides that or denies that, he might seem humble, but he would be hiding from us the very thing that would make us completely fulfilled forever. C.S. Lewis had this epiphany as he was intellectually challenging this idea of worship to God and before he had made the commitment. But watching the people of God worship brought him completely around. He recognized that it was more about what God was doing in them through worship than what they were doing to God through their worship. It was this full circle of coming into an, an awareness of why we're here and who loves us and who created us and how awesome he is that made his people live joyously and fulfilled lives, even in the midst of the deepest of sorrow, coming into the presence to God and lifting their hands and worshiping him, transformed them from a world that is, is collapsing and, and decaying into a kingdom that is advancing and growing. Authentic worship has some components in it. Authentic worship comes from the heart. It's not just the lips. It's not people just talking and saying beautiful words. It's really from the very heart of them. It is obedience in action. True worship to God is obedience. Questionably obeying God and following what he's asked us to do. It is sacrificial. It's, it's done when we don't feel like doing it. It's done, I was, as we were going through this with uh, this past week with my nephew, and uh, I was remembering Zach, and, and he was only eight when that same thing happened to him. He had an appendix rupture, and we thought we were going to lose him. Two surgeries. Michelle and I remember sitting in, uh, in the lobby and, uh, while they were doing some things uh, for him medically and slipping away, losing weight. He'd been in the hospital 21 days. And we, we, we saw him leaving us, and it was crushing us to the very core of our being. And it was in those moments that, that praise and worship was sacrificial. Remember all the ministers coming and gathering around and praying for him. And, and as a father, I, I, I had so, uh, throughout the years, you know, considered myself, uh, you know, a, a, a minister that could, could pray, you know, effectively, could bring eloquent words, could could rally to the moment and, and pray. And I had done this so many times in my life for other people. And yet, here I am, and this is my son, and I'm knelt down, crushed, watching life slip away. And I have to lean into the prayers of brothers and sisters who are standing around me. And all I could do was sob, sacrifice of praise. And fourth, authentic worship will always bring glory to God. We will, we'll, there won't be a hook that brings glory back to us. It will always bring glory to God. It's John saying, he's got to increase, i got to decrease. You guys forget my sermon yesterday. Remember Jesus today. Remember what he can do in your heart and life. 
I'm going to invite our worship team to, to come back as we get ready to close. Some understanding of what we were talking about today, the same gospel seed, different results. There are so many facets to the Word of God. This is a text that can be preached over and over again. We could tackle what is the thorny ground, what around you is choking out the life of the gospel, the good news. Who are you listening to? Who have you surrounded yourself with that's trying to strip away your faith? It's tearing at everything that God's trying to plant in your life. We could talk about the stony ground. Where have you hardened your heart to God's call in your life? Yes, I'll be obedient to that, to that. But here, I know better, and I'm going to do what I want to do in this area. And, and, and we've hardened ourselves, and now uh, we're not growing. We're not developing. God keeps breaking, trying to break those rocks, and we keep holding back and saying, no, I, I, want, I want this to stay in my life times that we've thought to, to the seed we've planted has been futile, uh, been devoured by the birds, blown by the wind. It's found its way into some very good ground. God has been doing some incredible things, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, and that good ground that we are called to develop. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? We got we to gotta ask ourselves that this morning. Am I teachable so that God can bring a bountiful harvest through me? And as we're gathered in his presence, that's exactly where I want us to go this morning is a place of, of complete surrender to him, that we would open our hearts and lives to saying, I want to be teachable. And so as we're worshiping together, I'm inviting you to stand and make that statement to God through our worship, Lord, we surrender to you. We are teachable.